Good morning. How's everybody? Let me be among the first to wish you a happy Thanksgiving as we embark on a week of uh, food, football, and frivolity. Frivolity, that's a word. Okay. I'm a little less excited this year about Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to do a whole 30 Thanksgiving. <laughs> Calm down. There's nothing wrong with paleo pancakes and pistachio nuts. It will be fine. But as we, as we approach this week where we tend to think about how we've been blessed, it's also appropriate that if we kind of refocus ourselves on how we give. In other words, this morning, we're going to put the giving back in Thanksgiving. And we're going to do so by looking at a couple of passages from Paul um, and his letter, second letter to the Corinthian church. Um, I, I think it would be an understatement to say that Paul is one of the most interesting figures in both the Bible and in history. I mean, this guy was uh, particularly prepared and particularly called uh, for the work he's about to do. I mean, if you look at his life, before his calling and conversion, uh, he tells us in Philippians how he was a, a Hebrew among Hebrews. I mean, basically, if we put it in today's terms, he was like on the Ivy League track to being a Pharisee, right? And then his calling and his conversion, this week in men's leadership school, we talked a little bit about um, what it means to be called as an elder. What does, what does that look like? How do you know you're being called to be an elder or to be a pastor? And when we talked about it, we talked about kind of starting with this inner desire. Is this something I really, I really feel inside? But, uh, you know, and there was more to it than that. How do we affirm that? And if you've been following Christ for any length of time, you've probably gone through this process of... Am I being called to do this thing? And, and, it's a, and it's a discerning process and it's kind of nebulous, right? Well, not for Paul, right? This cat's on a road trip to Damascus and bam, blinded by a light from heaven, hears the very voice of Jesus. I think that's a pretty clear calling, wouldn't you? I mean, that's not one you're going to go, I'm not so sure about that. And then after that, and it's kind of hard to piece this together, to, to see, you know, all of Paul's life, we have, we have kind of the biography in the second part of Acts, and we have some stuff in some of his letters, but it appears that after his conversion, he was actually tutored by the Lord himself in some sort of supernatural way. Now, now that's, that's some education. Talk about fulfilling the promise. Okay, the marketing department at IU is going to be very disappointed that you didn't get that one. There's billboards. They say fulfilling the... Okay. The other thing about Paul, I think, is it's hard to understate the irony in his life. Because here he is, as I said, this guy on the Ivy League track to being a Pharisee, right? And then, boom, this conversion. And what happens? He goes from persecuting the church to being its leading advocate and missionary. And, and I know this is going to be kind of theologically incorrect and borderline blasphemous, but I can't help to think that God must have been in heaven at one point in time talking to his angels. You know, Michael, come here. Remember Paul? Remember he's Pharisee? And we did that thing on the road to Damascus, and now he's like the great missionary. Guess what I'm going to do? Send him to the Gentiles. Right? The very people as a Pharisee, he would have not had anything to do with. And then on top of it, if you read his letters, you know that one of the big challenges he had in the churches he established was, 
having the Jewish Christian brothers wanting to impose on the Gentile Christian brothers all of the customs and rituals of Judaism that Paul himself was an expert in. I mean, that's irony. And in his second visit to Jerusalem, this was kind of the main point of his, of his visit. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus go to Jerusalem. We want to settle this issue. Do Gentile Christians have to fall in line with all of the Jewish customs? And so he sits down with the pillars there, Peter, James, and John. And the first thing they do is compare Gospels, which must have been an interesting thing. Paul's going to say, here's the Gospel I got. Oh, by the way, directly from Jesus supernaturally. And I know you guys hung around with him for three years, so how do they match up? And they're like, okay, they all match up, that's good. And implied in this is, Gentile believers don't have to go through this circumcision, the rituals, and so forth. But the interesting note, and the point I'm making about this whole thing, about this Jerusalem uh, visit, was this. They agree, Paul, Barnabas, going to be the apostle to the, apostles to the Gentiles, Peter, James, and John going to stay in Jerusalem, feed the word to the, to the Jews there to present the gospel to them. But at the end, there's an interesting note. At the end of Galatians chapter 2, or verse 10, it says this, after all of this, Paul says of the pillars, they asked one thing, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And the poor here are the poor in Jerusalem, particularly the, the, the Jewish Christian believers. What had happened is there's a famine. And of course, a famine's going to affect everybody. But in particular, the church in Jerusalem must have had a pretty rough go of it. Because when things got bad, here they are living amongst the people who they were once a part of, Jews, who were, and they're probably now ostracized because of their belief in the view of the Jews, probably just, you know, a terrible disruption of, of their faith. And so they were having a tough go of it. So in the context of this relief effort, we're going to learn a few things about generosity. In the context of Paul, who over the next 10 years as he was traveling, would continuously, wherever he was, raise money for relief of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, he gives us a few key lessons about generosity. So today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians. We're going to take a lot of uh, both chapters 8 and 9, but the core verse we want to look at today is 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Would you stand with me, please? It's on page, the very bottom of page 967 of your Bibles. You're going to have to flip the page to follow along one verse. Second Corinthians 8, 7. Paul writes this. To the, to the church in Corinth. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's pray. Father God, it is, it is the tendency of our hearts to cling to that which is ours, whether it's our money, whether it's our possessions, whether it's our time, uh, whether it's our giftedness, Father, we ask this morning uh, that you would release our hearts, that you would release our hearts to be generous, to be generous in you and in response to what you have done in our lives. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay. I've got the new OS on my 
iPad, which has things pop up, like today's attendance, I'm back, we've got it. Okay, so this act of, sorry, this act of grace that Paul is speaking of is, of course, generosity, okay? The collection for the saints uh, in Judea has been an, an integral part of his ministry wherever he goes, Galatia, Macedonia, wherever he's collecting. So Paul is urging that the church in Corinth also excel in this act of grace, that they excel in being generous. So a year earlier, Paul had exhorted the church at Corinth in, his, in what we call his first letter, probably his second overall letter, uh, to the Corinthians to, to start collecting money for the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And apparently this had gotten off to a good start, but now uh, there was some slack and irregularity in this. So what Paul is doing, he's dispatching Titus and a couple of other brothers to go ahead of him to Corinth to to work on this collection. So in, in this passage, he expresses several principles that should characterize our approach as believers, to how we use our resources. And the first principle we see here is this, that the motivation for generosity is the gospel. How we handle our resources, whether it's our money, whether it's our time, whether it's our giftedness, whether it's our very presence, is a direct response to the gospel. So the motivation for biblical generosity is just that. Now, again, I'm not talking specifically about money. Paul's going to be talking about money. I used to tell my economics students the first week of class, economics is not about money. We'll probably measure everything we talk about in this class in dollars, but it's not about money. It's about people producing things. It's about people consuming things. Likewise, when we talk about generosity, although we're going to be using money, We're talking about all of these things. We're talking about time, giftedness, presence, our very emotions, right? So it's it's all wrapped up. Now, Paul starts by giving us two examples. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us." When I was teaching high school, um, we, we tended as teachers to characterize classes. We'd be sitting and having lunch or in the teacher's lounge, and we'd say, man, that sophomore class, what a bunch of hooligans these guys are. Or the junior, that was your class, wasn't it? That's why you reacted that way. Or the junior class, man, are they academically sharp. Now, that didn't mean everybody in the sophomore class was a hooligan or everybody in the junior class was academically sharp, but classes kind of were characterized like that. And in my years of teaching, I almost always taught seniors, so I really liked getting this intel, getting this information so I could see it coming, right? And I don't know, maybe I I fulfilled the prophecy by, by hearing these things, but churches have characteristics too. It would, it would be my prayer that when the community looks at Redeemer, they think that's a church on mission. That's a church of community, right? That's a church that embraces the gospel. That's a church where people care for one another. And the same is true of the churches in the first century. And what, what Paul is conveying here is that there's a little bit of difference between the churches in Macedonia, which would be the church at Philippi, Thessalonica, 
Thessalonica, Berea, and so forth, and the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was characterized by factions. By, they'd take each other to court. They tended to parade their spiritual gifts around. Look at me, I speak in tongues. They tend to be, you know, divisive. They tend to be um, economically divided. They, they would not care for the poor among them. Whereas the churches in Macedonia were characterized by care and love and generosity. And what Paul is saying at this point in time is the Macedonian churches were so poor that Paul did not expect them to participate. He, he didn't even ask them. And yet they did. Why? Verse 5, they were responding to the gospel. But they gave themselves first to the Lord. The Macedonian churches were motivated by the gospel of grace that they had received. They brought up the idea of giving. Paul, hey, we heard you got a collection going. We are in. Paul expected nothing from them. They begged, begged for the privilege of sharing in this manner. These churches in northern Greece understood that committed self-giving to the Lord and to others is basic to Christianity. And now Paul is exhorting at the, the church at Corinth to be like them. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. The contrast is stark. The Corinthians who by comparison at least were rich, had agreed to contribute, but had now had ceased. The Macedonians, who were extremely poor by any standard, asked and begged, we want to help. The Macedonian churches were reflecting the grace they had received in Christ. Just as God showed his grace to us, we sinful, undeserving, unworthy people. So the Macedonians were saying, we've never met these people in Jerusalem. But we want to help because of what God has done in our life. Now also notice too that, that Paul's not scolding. He's been very warm and encouraging. He starts by saying, here's the good things you were doing. You are excelling in faith and speech and knowledge. But now add generosity. If we look at the verse 8.8, the one right after our text, you'll have to flip the page. I, Paul says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also generous. Paul is gently saying to the Corinthians, express your love like this as well. So the first example that Paul gives about how we are to be generous is the application of the gospel just as the churches in Macedonia were doing. The second example is in verse 9 of chapter 8. And it says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now Paul is bringing out the big bats, just like the Cubs in the World Series. You knew I was going to go there. Don't tell me you didn't know. Okay, back to seriousness. This is even a more powerful example of grace. He is comparing what Jesus did. And he's first saying that Jesus was rich. Well, how rich was Jesus? If we look at, at Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, 
he really details this for us. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. How rich was Jesus? He was God. He is God. Don't parse the tenses with me on this one. That is pretty rich. How poor did he become? Verse 7, chapter 2 of Philippians. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus went from a status of fully God, seated on a celestial throne, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, to becoming a man. Not only a man, but a servant. Is that all? Is that the totality of Christ's poverty, as Paul outlines it in Philippians? No. Next verse. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this Jesus, eternal before all time, fully God, the second person of the Trinity, of his own accord, in executing God the Father's plan of salvation, gave up everything. He became one of us born in earthly poverty and humility, lived a life unlike any other, sinless in perfect harmony with the Father, yet died a death that he alone did not deserve. We often speak in terms of the death that he died that we deserved. He alone did not deserve that death, but raised again to demonstrate the victory that he had secured on our behalf. And for what? that we might become rich. Paul has already conveyed this message to the Corinthians a couple chapters earlier in chapter 5 when he said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become rich. Christ became poor so that you and I can be rich in righteousness with God. This is the lesson that Paul is trying to convey to the church at Corinth. He's using two examples. The churches at Macedonia and the example of Christ himself. Both provide the model not only for the church at Corinth, but for the church at Bloomington. We are to be generous. We are to give generously not out of guilt. We are to give generously not because of obligation not a duty, it is a response. A response to the undeserved generosity that God bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus and His saving work. The motivation for our generosity is the gospel. Generosity modeled perfectly in the accomplishment of Christ. Generosity demonstrated by the churches at Macedonia. Now, I feel like I have to address the skeptic and the unbeliever in the room. Because I was once in your seat as well. If I'm in your seat, I've got at least two questions or two comments. My first is this. There are people who are very generous who are not Christians, who are not motivated by the gospel. Secondly, I know people who are Christians who do not seem to be very generous. Don't you think we need to address this? I'll do so like this. First of all, I'm not saying that the gospel is the only motivation for generosity, but I am saying that it should be a powerful motivator, the motivator 
for those of us who are followers of Christ. The key word there is should be. But as a follower of Christ, there's this little thing called sanctification. Right? The moment we become followers of Christ, we had six baptisms last week. I can assure you that those six people did not come out of that water and instantly were sinless, instantly were generous, instantly had their lives transformed. That would be nice if that's how it worked. But that's, um, did Levi come out different? Was it? No. Okay. <laughs> Just checking to make sure my facts were correct. Right? There's this process we go by where we work with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit moves us more and more. So yeah, if you know some Christians who aren't generous, maybe it's a sanctification thing, right? So the first thing is, it should be our motivation. But I will also say this, the gospel is the only pure motivation for generosity. And what I'm saying is this, any other motive will be based in self, either in what I want people to think of me for being generous or what I think of me for being generous, Generosity outside the gospel may do great things, has done great things. There are monuments to generosity all throughout the world. And most of the monuments have the name of the benefactor on the monument, which is the point I'm making. But the motive will be self. Now, again, if you're a skeptic or an unbeliever sitting in a chair out there, again, a chair I once occupied, you may be a little offended, saying, are you saying, Dave that the only motivation outside the gospel is going to be self. How can you say that? How can you make such a statement? I'll give you two two arguments for this. The first was from Scripture. And I could have picked any of a dozens of, of passages, but I chose these three. First from Romans. You may be familiar with this book. Okay. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. Paul writes, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. That's a comment on you and me. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew said this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And if we stop right there, it would seem to be saying that Jesus is saying we do have good works. But wait. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Because that is the only source of our good works. One more. In Mark, one of the accounts of Jesus encountering what is called the rich young ruler. Right? The rich guy who wanted to know about getting into heaven. How can I do it without giving up my money? Wanted some answers. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher. And Jesus' response is this. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If we take these verses and dozens of others or the breadth of Scripture, here's what we find. In our fallen state, we are incapable of good outside of common grace and the Holy Spirit. If we do good, it is is only an appearance of good. Now, again, the skeptic in the room might be saying, that's great, Dave. Nice quoting Scripture. Well done. But I don't accept that book like you do. It does not have authority over my life. So I'll give you my second argument for this, that the only pure motive for generosity, and it's one we should embrace as followers of Christ, is the gospel, is this. And you can't dispute these facts because it's my personal experience. I know that in my heart, 
regardless of how far along the sanctification process I may be, when I do something good, I like to pat myself on the back. And I bet if you're honest with yourself, you do too. And I, don't, I suspect there won't be this side of Jesus returning that that won't happen. That's who we are. That's our motivation. It's okay. We have grace for that. But the pure motivation for generosity is what Christ has done for us. For the follower of Christ, that motivation is the gospel. And I would argue in the human experience, it's the only pure motivation. So point number one, that's our motivation. Point number two, all Christians are to participate in being generous. Let me present a couple of facts from our text and make the argument here. Paul is, first of all, not expecting the Corinthians to be the sole donors. If you look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8, he says this, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So what Paul is saying is that this giving, this generosity, is a matter of fairness. It's a matter of equality. But we've got to clarify that a little bit. What, what does he mean by equality? Go down to chapter 9, verse 5. He says this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of, to you and arrange in advance for the gift you, you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. There's a word you use in everyday conversation, is it not? Exaction. Let me, let me give you an example of an exaction. Back when I was in college, 100 years ago, we would order pizza. Yes, we had delivered pizza back in that day. Thanks a lot. So five or six guys on the dorm floor would get together. How many pizzas we want? Okay, it's going to be 30 bucks. There's five of us. Everybody's going to kick in six bucks. Did I do that right? 30 divided by five. Thank you, Matthew. 30 divided by five is six. That's an exaction. Okay, it's an amount compelled to be given. All right? And Paul is saying our giving is not to be an exaction. It's not to be everybody gives the same amount. It's also not to be Everybody gives the same percentage. Now, the Old Testament tithe is not carried over to the New Testament, but it's a good guideline. And on top of it, if we look at what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, it's probably a minimum amount, right? Because what did he say about adultery? If you even lust in your heart. What did did he say about murder? If you hate your brother. So I'm sure if the 10% in the Old Testament was the guideline, that's We should be even more generous than that. So an exaction is a compelled amount. He's saying no. We're not going to have a compelled amount. Paul is teaching that equality and giving and generosity is not a per-person thing. But well, what is he saying? Go down to chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We can, we can summarize all of this like this. Paul is calling for fairness and equality. What does that mean? He's calling for spiritual equality. What, what does that mean? Let's look at the words he has used. It's not under compulsion. It's not reluctant. 
It is not an exaction. Well, what is it? Willing, according to the heart, and cheerful. Spiritual equality in the matter of generosity is this, equality of willingness. And Jesus pointed this out when he pointed out the woman who gave her final two coins. Her uh, action was a spiritual act of willingness. In giving money, giftedness, time, whatever, we seek equality of willingness because we all start from a different position in the resources that we have. So Paul's point is this. Wherever God's people are prepared to use their gifts, their money, their time, willingly, there will be equality. There will be fairness. John Stott put it this way. I thought this was brilliant. Because how do you measure willingness? How do you decide if we're all equal in willingness? And I think often when we think about giving, we look at our checkbooks, how much can I give? We look at our calendars, how much time do I have? But Stott made an interesting point. Maybe we should look at our brothers and sisters. He said this, we must search our conscience to ensure that our brother or sister in Christ is not having to do more or pay more in the fellowship of believers because we selfishly are doing less. How much are we to give? Part of it is we need to look around and see what our brothers or sisters are doing and make sure they're not burdened because we're not doing our part. Interesting measure. Two examples he gave earlier add to our point about equality. The first example was the Macedonian church. They were poor and they give. The second example was Christ. He was rich and he gave. That pretty much covers everybody, doesn't it? We are all to participate in generosity. Third and final principle. See, classic three-point sermon here. I'm a paid professional. Well, actually, I'm an unpaid professional. Never mind. Principle number three. Gospel generosity produces fruit. If we look at verses 10 through 15 of chapter 9, we see three examples of fruit produced by generosity. Verse 10 of chapter 9. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, first of all, let's not mistake this for kind of a health and wealth doctrine. Let's reread the verse. And if we stop at the right point, we could, get that, we could come to that conclusion. It does not say, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. There's an ending. Your seed for sowing more and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. When we give generously, God gives us more to give generously. Isn't that ironical? Not a word, actually. Second, verses 11 through 13. Generosity produces a harvest of thanksgiving. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Generosity produces thanksgiving. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Not only does generosity produce thanksgiving and glory to God, it produces it in abundance. And notice how in verse 13 now, Paul's going to come right back to the gospel. 
right back. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all of the others. So there will be thanksgiving and generosity. It will be abundant. And then Paul again brings us back to the gospel. God has saved us by grace. Giving is an outward expression of our response to that. So generosity is a confirmation of what God has done and not the basis for it. The final fruit of that is this. Generosity creates a bond of affection and prayer between the giver and the receiver. Verse 14. While they long for you, while they, the saints in Jerusalem who are suffering, long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace upon you. I've been fortunate enough to be on all three of the uh, mission trips to Brazil so far. You're going to cry because I'm going to cry. The gift there was not money. We do give to Restore Brazil. But the gift of going to Brazil is presence. To be there. To be side by side with the people who are working down there. And at the end of a week, you just, the bond you have, I was going to make you cry and look what's happening. Shh. You can't explain it. Even now, there are people 10,000 miles away who obviously have a part of my heart because of what we went and gave. Because that, that's what it produces. It produces a bond that those receiving generosity, they perceive this graciousness as an outworking of the grace of God. So both the giver and the receiver, we both know that grace. There's a chain reaction in generosity of thanksgiving, of fellowship. And what does Paul say in verse 15? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Generosity. So, we are motivated to be generous. Our time, our talents, our presence by the gospel of Christ. We are all called to participate in generously given. We are all called to be equally willing to give. And this generosity produces fruit. We will be blessed to give more, thanksgiving to God, and a bond of fellowship between those who give and those who receive. But we're kind of left with a question here because this passage in 2 Corinthians is kind of Paul saying, hey, you guys have fallen off on this given thing. We're coming to see you. I've told the Macedonians how great you guys are at giving. You know, I'm worried about being embarrassed when I get there. Did the Corinthians come through? Did they take these lessons about generosity to heart? Were they motivated by the gospel? A year later, Paul will be in Corinth and he'll write a letter to the Romans, again, with which we are somewhat familiar. And in chapter 15, he says this, for Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia, the region where Corinth is, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Apparently, the Corinthians came through. May it be written one day that at Redeemer, We excelled in everything. Don't know why this happens to me. In faith, 
in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, that we also excelled in this act of grace, generosity. At this time, we're going to uh, move to a celebration. We're going to celebrate the generosity of Christ in our lives um, by participating in his supper. Paul wrote in his first letter to the Corinthians that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and said, take this, this is my body, which is about to be broken and tortured for you. And then he said, this cup, this cup of wine, this is the new covenant, a covenant between God and you, a covenant of grace that we are about to celebrate. And so that's really what we're doing right now as believers, right? We're, we're kind of recommitting ourselves to that covenant. So this time is a time for believers. If you're not a believer, we ask that you kind of take what was said. It was kind of a, a message to Christians of how we are to act, but we hope you saw the, the message of Christ in there as well. Uh, but if you have questions, and you're one of those skeptics who have questions, there'll be pastors in the back. Uh, here at Redeemer, what we do is we break off the bread and we dip it in the cup. We have two cups. One has juice and one has wine. The wine is marked with twine to, to take as your conscience leads you. Um, so let us continue in, in worship in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for how you, you address everything. You even address giving. You address generosity. You teach us how we are to uh, respond to what you have done in our lives, to what you have done through Christ. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that it's bold and it's true and it's, and it cuts to our heart, Father. Uh, we just ask right now that uh, as we move forward, we'd be, we'd be touched uh, by the act of grace that is generosity. Um, as we move into the season of remembering and thanksgiving and, and remembering the birth of your son, uh, Father, work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.